We're going to start with that Romans 5 text. And then we're going to go handle that, that Matthew text. Because that's just, it's just stunning stuff in there. Uh, good news all the way around. We're going to start with this, this Romans 5 text. And we're going to do something a bit different. I mean, I've got the same sheet you have. Or I've got an ESV translation and a New King James translation. But I've also got something else I don't normally bring in the pulpit with me. I've got my Greek up here. I'm okay. I'm okay with the Greek. I'm not great. I, I've been lazy, I think. I could have been much better by this time. But I'm not bad. I, and I'm good enough that I can now, after having studied these five verses from Paul, who's a very, once you study Paul, his Greek is a certain way. And so you can kind of get to read Paul. You jump over to James, you're like, what language is this? So Paul, because he's so Lutheran, <laughs> uh, Paul is just very easy to us. We study him a lot. And so I was able to get in these five verses pretty well this week. And then also now I, I am fresh enough in it. I can, I think, talk to you about it. And I really think we have an opportunity with this text particularly to do that and then get some value as we think about Bible translation. And the ESV, which is our official translation, is the one the LCMS uses. It's not like, like it's official from God, but like, you know, everyone kind of uses it. CPH publishes it. But there's a lot of LCMS churches that use the New King James. I've been using it in my personal life recently. I find it better than with the Greek than uh, ESV is. And I can explain that to you, but I just want you to see it in kind of action today. You can just, you'll, you'll get a feel it from this. But now that you know where we're going, let me give you something else to, to wonder about a little bit here. Oh, hold on. I got to find the right pile. I have two very good piles. That's for Wednesday night. Don't need that. I, I'm going to read a series of thoughts to you. And I think these are going to sound completely scattered. But I want you to know that they're thoughts I had while studying this text and praying about how to preach it for you. This isn't all that I thought. These are just, I think, five really good thoughts that came out of this. Now, just I want this just to be kind of our, I don't know, our meditation for a moment here, okay? So let's start with this one. Here's one. This is really interesting to me. I personally, Jonathan, your pastor, am increasingly willing to consider that we live in some kind of end times scenario. Now, what do I mean by that? I've taught you in Bible study, we live in the end times. We all know this. Since Jesus rose, we live in the end times. But see, in, in American, that doesn't mean that, right? In American, the end times means like the week or three years before Jesus comes back. And I have patently avoided thinking that way my entire life. Because every generation that came before us thought Jesus was coming back like right then. So I'm like, I'm going to do one around on him here. Yeah, I'm going to not live in the end times in my head knowing that it probably won't come to pass. And <laughs> I'm increasingly wondering if I'm quite wrong about that. I don't know. That's a whole other topic, right? We go a million miles on that. How's this one? You do want to be more like Jesus, don't you? Do you? Yeah, good. I think the way Lutherans have talked the last 30 years to ourselves convinces us not to. I think we're afraid if I tell you, go be like Jesus, you'll go out and be a legalistic Pharisee. And so I don't tell you it. And you're afraid if I say, I'll try to be like Jesus, you might accidentally try to justify yourself with your works. And then you'd go to hell. And so you don't try to be like Jesus. Wouldn't want to do that. And I think that's actually how we do it. Like as a church body, I think it's a little loony. I, I want to be like Jesus. I'm pretty sure. 
How's this one? The precisely most harmless wrong idea is just the one believed the most. So bad ideas don't matter as long as you don't think they're true, right? And what's going on right now with our civilization, no matter what political party you want to think is going to save us from it all, no matter what is going on right now, is a bad idea being believed very hard over a generation or three. And that bad idea is that God is not working in the world. That's the bad idea. And it's running our civilization. And right now, because God is not working in the world, nature doesn't even exist anymore. A boy is not a boy, a girl is not a girl, and you're wrong to think so. That's just a wrong idea believed too hard. Yeah? You can step right out of it and believe the right idea and just see how crazy everybody is. Here's why we're crazy. The human soul is habitually creating quests out of nothing, out of a need to satisfy our hunger to save ourselves. What this means is you can't be calm because you need to create a crisis so you can fix it so you can feel like you did something. And that's American life. But it's built upon our sinful need to justify ourselves. Now, that's what Paul's going to get at directly here. So that's like a big idea we're really going to chase. But let me also just throw you one to deal with James since we're going through James midweek. Romans is Paul writing a corrective nuance to James as James is being mistaught in Rome. That's where this book comes from. Now, I, I could be wrong, I suppose, but I'm going to tell you, James is the first book written. All the scholars say that. Okay, so he wrote first, and his teaching, it is not only by works you are justified, by the time it got to Rome, had become a new form of circumcision. And so Paul writes this beautiful letter to the church of Rome, so they would never forget justification. You know why we're not in Rome, by the way, right? You know what they forgot? Like the one thing the letter written to them says. It's kind of an amazing thing. The, the Pope is the Antichrist. We do have to come to terms with this at some point. I'm, I'm, that's the end times thing coming back out, right? Here it is. I'm increasingly willing to consider that we live in some deep sea end times. Everybody who came before us and watched TV, they all said the Pope was the Antichrist unless they were Roman Catholics. All of them. Every church body. Nobody says it anymore. Why is that? Kind of weird. Kind of weird. Romans is Paul writing to correct a misunderstanding of James. So when James says it is not only works that justify you, he's making sure no one takes advantage of the gospel. He's making, no, no one, making sure nobody sits back and says, I can love Jesus and do whatever I want. But now people have got that in their conscience. They're like, I have to justify myself with my works. I don't know. And Paul's like, wait, 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 wait. The real justification, if we're going to talk about that word, especially in English, is about whether or not you on judgment day are innocent. That's the, that's the question, okay? And really, all men wrestle with this question, at least if they believe there is a God or gods, which means in our age, you just have anxiety instead. But you would be wrestling with how to save yourself if you didn't just believe there were no gods. I'm talking generally, right? Um, but the question then of justification is, on that judgment day, when the God who made all of this comes and says, I'm winding it all up, I'm taking the good with me and the bad I'm burning in the oven. Where are you going? Are you going to with God or are you being thrown into the oven? And how would you know is the real question. How would you know? Huh? And what Jesus is rising from the dead is God saying, no one has to go in the oven. No human being has to go in the oven. In fact, I will not send any of them into the oven. 
come to me and I will take you out. And everyone who hears that and believes it, we're getting out. Some don't hear it and believe it. You know what they're doing? They're running off the cliff like lemmings. They're diving in the oven. Give me death, give me death, give me lots of more death. We, Christians, believing then, we are justified by Christ. That we are not to do more to be with him, but because we are with him, we are free to do more than anybody else who's here because we can see and we can think with the word of God. We can see that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. We don't even need the word of God to tell us that. But the word of God tells us that too. Now, Romans 5, verse 1, the first thing it's going to say in the ESV is, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So there it is, right? This, this idea of justification. And what I want you to know is that, as I try to kind of go from the Greek here, there's a lot of differences between Greek and English. But a major one is where they put the words in the sentence doesn't matter in the same way. Okay, so for English, if I'm going to talk about me, I'm going to be in the front of the sentence, and something I'm going to do something to is going to be at the back of the sentence, right? That's called the subject-object. Um, it doesn't work that way in Greek. Instead, the front of the sentence is what you want people to pay attention to, and the back is kind of like, oh yeah, and this too. And there's reasons for how it develops that way, but to know that then, what it means is that the first word in the Greek is more important than the first word in the English, and the first word in the English, therefore, in the Greek, is the second word. Now, therefore, will often show up at the front of a sentence that it would make sense to be there. But that word un is second. The first word is diakai, excuse me, <laughs> dikaiathentes. Dikaiathentes. I want you to hear the dikaia in that, because that is a word that will show up the more I talk about Greek. Dikaia. And it is the word, <laughs> in English, we have been justified. It's that, that whole thing is one word. We have been justified, therefore, out of faith, is the next thing it says, out of faith. So again, being therefore justified, out of faith, now he's going to say what he really means. I'm, I'm going to not go back and forth between MKGV and ESV now. I'm going to let you do that. Your eyes follow. I'm going straight from Greek right now, okay? And I just want you to hear what I'm saying. You, you look around, and I want you to see if you can. Again, where the English isn't like the Greek, but you'll be able to hear it. You'll be able to still hear it, I think. Um, so let's start at the start of this, okay? Dikaia thentes, that's having been justified, un, therefore, ek pisteos, out of faith, erinane, peace, echomen, we have. Peace we have. Pros tom on. That's before God or with God or in God's sight. Peace with God, prostantha on, diatu curio emon Jesu Christu. You can kind of hear Jesus Christ in there, right? Jesu Christu. And you maybe could pick up on the kyriu. The kyrie, Lord have mercy. We sing it regularly. Yeah? So again, being justified, therefore, out of faith, peace we have before God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? Verse 2. Through whom? Now here we have a really strange word. It's tain prosogagain. Prosogagain. It has the word to go in it, like to move forward, but also has the word to in it. 
And what it comes to mean is like a portal or an opening or a gate that normally would be shut, but you can go into now. You've made your way through this closed thing, right? That's the word. So through whom Jesus also or even the opening, the entry into the portal we have. Eskema, man. And then it says, into that portal, what do you go into? Ace, tain, karin. Into the grace. Into the grace. Now, I'm sure you can see that there in the English. All those words are there. But the way it comes across is very different. Very different in, in the Greek. Right? So let me just speak out of order in English this time through. Justified being, therefore, out of faith, peace we have before God through the Lord of us, Jesus Christ, through whom also the opening we have into grace. This, and it's going to go on from there, but do you hear how it kind of rings different? Like a foreign language. Now, again, the grace that he mentions is a particular grace. So he calls it this grace. That's very strong there in the Greek. It's pointing to it as different from grace that's from somewhere else. This grace in which, I'm going to say this one out loud, a, excuse me, it's an, it's an H on the front, hey, estekamen, hey, estekamen, we stand, we stand. Histomy, the root there, is one of the most basic words in the ancient world. It goes back way before Greek. And it ends up in Greek because everyone uses it. And so as the languages break apart and break apart, histomy and its twin, tithomy, are these really weird words that don't even belong in the Greek. They don't translate like the Greek. When you have to learn them, you're like, why are we doing this? It's all wrong. But it's all over the New Testament because it's such a basic word. So again, histomy, to stand, you think of standing like as opposed to sitting. Don't think of it that way. Think of standing as opposed to running away. Standing as opposed to running away. The grace in which you stand. That's, that's his to me, okay? So we have this, he says. We have entry into this through Jesus himself. I mean, these, are, these are profound claims. Just powerful ideas. Yeah? All right, so uh, access into the grace in which we stand and, and in which we rejoice it's a long word, kalkometha. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, so I got one more thought for you from a card this week. This is the one the last service got, right? So we have Bible study service. Last service, they get a shorter sermon. This is the only thought from this week on these cards they got. It's the best one. You don't get to meet joy until you agree to marry hope. Now, let it be like girls for just half a second as symbols, but then get rid of it. We're talking about ideas here. But it, you're marrying an idea, okay? And the way these ideas, let's call them girls, though, for metaphor's sake, these ladies, the way that they act is completely different. And so if you try to get joy, you go and try to get joy, joy is going to run away from you. Joy is shy. And joy doesn't want to get married. Joy will never stay with you. She will not be with you every single moment of every day. But hope, hope will marry you. Hope will be there all the time. That's what this text says, and I'll show you again in a moment. Hope will be there all the time. And when you marry hope, guess who comes around all the time? Guess who's like hope's best friend? Joy. So you don't get to marry hope. I mean, so you don't get to marry joy, but you get to have her around, but only when you remember your hope. And if you forget hope, if you ignore hope, 
Well, your joy is going to go away too. Now, let me show you that in the text here. Okay, so we just did verse 2, right? In which in the middle of it, it's in the grace, this grace in which we stand and rejoice. That's to have joy in hope of the glory of God. So now the hope there that's being mentioned, elpide is the word in the Greek. And doxis, glory, it's a huge word in the Greek. But the hope of the glory of God, if we narrow that down and understand it according to how Paul has defined it, it's not some random thing. It's not just kind of a general vacuous idea. The, the hope of the glory of God is this diakothentes I was just talking about. That no matter what your life looks like on this planet, good or bad, and it'll be bad by the time we're putting you in the dust, no matter what your life looks like on this planet, you are going to come through the grave with a new body that is you and this body, purged of all its ailments and ills, in order to live in an everlasting paradise of righteousness, blessedness, and just a darn good time, honestly, with everybody that believes this. And so they'll all be really glad to be there. That's the hope of the glory of God, the knowledge that Jesus Christ is returning to wipe this world away, to burn it with the fire, and that's okay because it's going to be better after he does that. And the more you marry that idea, the more joy you're going to have in your life. It's just going to happen. Because what will happen is, well, let's go on. He's going to tell us more in the next sentence. He's not done yet. He's about to get crazy, though. Let me take a little sip of coffee. Did that, did that make sense in one sentence? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> uh, the next line, remember I told you how the, the Greek fronts the things that mean the most, right? I'm going to look at the English here and compare. Oh, good. It's, it's there in the English. So when it says not only that, or the NKGV and not only that, um, well, yeah, the first word in the Greek is ooh, ooh, which is no. There's two ways to say no, ooh and may. And actually, there's three ways to say no. You can say ooh, may, and that's kind of cursing a little bit, actually. Um, so... He just said, and Paul will do it actually too. Uh, but here, uh, it's just ooh. So right away after he has given you the hope of the glory of God, he says, not only this. So don't, don't miss that, okay? So I've, I've just given you total joy and hope in the resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and not just that, not just when he comes. Ooh, manan, de. Not only the, but. <laughs> and he's got two buts in here. But also, kalkometha enticed. So the same rejoicing word. It's a powerful word. You will have joy in your suffering, your trials, your tribulations, everything you don't like about life. On Wednesday night, I said the hard part about being a doer of the word and not a hearer of the word is believing the stupid, crazy stuff the word says. Like that, I will rejoice the more I suffer. That doesn't make sense, I, right? Unless you're married to hope. Because if you're married to hope, the more you suffer, the more you're going to remember hope. And then the more joy is going to be there. So it does make sense. Just not to the way the world works, right? Uh, <laughs> it's a different wisdom. Someone pointed out this morning, and you know, we're talking about wisdom a lot. Uh, don't miss that the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to the world. The world's upside down, but Christ has put it right side up in his resurrection so that not only do we rejoice in him, it's again, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that, rest of verse 3, knowing that the suffering flips this. Now, oh, 
the rest of verse 3. The last two words. Hupamanen kat ergadzetai. Now, hupamanen, if you were here Wednesday night, you heard it. It's in James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the tempering of your faith produces hupamanen. But did he just say that joy and suffering go together and make hupamanen? Did they both, did just Paul and James both say that? Yeah. Romans 5, verse 3, and James 1, verse, oh, I don't have the reference down. 3, I think. They're the same verse. They're the same saying. You can put them right next to each other, but only in the Greek. And here you begin to see why I'm a little frustrated as I teach you. I want you to see it. I want to give it to you. It's so good. And so I'm going to, I'm going to teach you. <laughs> I'm going to teach you the Greek a little bit. So that, again, now you know suffering is going to produce this hupamane. Remember from Wednesday night, hupamane means steadfastness. So think about how you're standing and you don't want to run. And now you're going to get steadfast. Uh, that's good. And see this too then. The thalipsis, the suffering that brings about this steadfastness, that other big Greek word, kater godzetai, that's the word work. So if we're going to have a debate about justification by grace or justification by works, in this sentence, God is using the word works to talk about what he's producing in you by making you suffer in faith. So through all of this, if you want to debate who's the Savior, I just don't think we have time for that anymore. Hence, Pope Antichrist. <laughs> You're out in that regard. All Roman Catholics? No. They just go to the church run by the Antichrist. They're good Christians who are deceived. Like all good Christians who are deceived, wherever there is false teaching, which could be here, which is why you should read your Bible carefully when I teach it to you, so you can tell me when I'm wrong. Because huh? you don't want me lying like that. So the working is where that all came from. The Pope teaches you're saved by your works. I read a book in the last three weeks by Pope Benedict. I guess he's retired, of course. But I went to him because I thought he's the faithful Pope. I'm really curious now what he thinks about the future of the world and what needs to be done for the church since, you know, he got pushed out of office by a bunch of pedophiles who run the cardinalate. And, and so maybe he's like really going to say something in this book we should all learn. Like, you know all that, right? That that's going on at those levels. And he does. So he wrote this book. What's the book about? celibacy, priestly celibacy, how the priesthood shouldn't have marriage. So one of the things as Lutherans, we're still in confession against them for, that we should have marriage amongst the priests. It's one of the reasons we, we got kicked out. He's still saying, well, that's what's going to save the church. Works. Works. Celibate works. Not family. Not the father. Look at that. Look at that. He's the Antichrist. Anyway, uh, what works good for you is Jesus putting this hope in you while you suffer that gives you this hupamane and this steadfastness while you stand? And then verse 4, hey de hupamane dokimane. Now, if you were here Wednesday night, you heard the word dokimane too. Because I made a big distinction between the temptation that we bring upon ourselves and the tempering that God works on us, right? And the temptation is our own sin and tempering. God doesn't send evil. He just takes our evil and bends it back to temper us, to drive it away and make us good again. So that temptation was parismos, and that tempering, that's document. And here it is. The hupomane produces that tempering. It's like Paul and James were preaching the same thing. If only we had the same words in English when they talked. The whole argument is almost about who translated what. Rome, at the time we argued with them, they were using the Latin. We were using the Hebrew and the Greek. Makes a difference. 
makes a difference. Now, these continue to build. I'm not going to take as much time on the rest of these. But this tempering, what comes out of it again? More hope. And then that hope, it will not now disappoint. I like put to shame. There's plenty of shame running around this cancel culture, this world of status. But the hope of the resurrection will not put to shame. We will all be first, last, last, first, standing before Jesus, casting crowns around a glassy sea. Will not put us to shame. And then, so that and because, the love of God now is poured into our hearts, kekutai, okay, poured out into our hearts. The love of God. What is that? Agape again. Um, hear this not first as because we love each other. Hear this as since we know God has done this on the cross for us and put it into us to believe that, therefore his love is active in us. That's what grace is. Yeah, Poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit of him who gives him. Now, I want to give you one more verse in Greek, though, that's not printed for you. I'm just going to read it in Greek. I'm going to do that kind of weird translation, but it's so good as a capstone, right? So we have all of this bit about how we're standing in the hope that cannot disappoint, that even in suffering only creates joy and more steadfastness because we know Christ is risen from the dead. And now one more verse. Ete gar Christas honton hemon asthenon. Ete katakairan huper asebon apathanen. Oh, so good. For a while we were still weak at the right time. Christ, for the ungodly, died. Oh, so good, so good. Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. Probably about 10 minutes here to get through this text about Jesus hiding. Jesus is hiding in Matthew chapter 15. Last week, Jesus was not hiding in the desert. He was reliving 40 years for Israel, wandering in the wasteland as 40 days, in which he didn't grumble like they did. He didn't need bread like they did. He just trusted God and the devil fled him, right? That was last week. All of that happens right after his baptism. So like he's 30-ish or so. He gets baptized by this guy, John, who's been around a year or so. And now he's talking, or sorry, before he's talking, he fights the devil. Then he goes and talks, miracles, all that. This text is three years ahead now. We're jumping to the very end. We're like within a month or so of him being crucified, okay? And things are getting bad. They're so bad that even in Galilee, they're looking for him to kill him. And so he leaves. And the text, we read it a while ago. Jesus went from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. I mean, I ain't kidding. He leaves. That's a long way, and that's a bad place. So let me tell you another story uh, from history, kind of like how the children of Israel wandered in the desert, and Jesus goes out in the desert to fulfill that prophecy. They cross the Jordan River to enter the promised land. He goes into the Jordan River to be baptized. The Bible works this way, okay? And so uh, David, the anointed king of Israel, who also has another king right now, Saul, also the anointed king of Israel, is wanting to be Saul's servant until God gives the kingdom to him and Saul's actually crazy and demon-possessed throwing spears at him and things, chasing him through the wilderness, round and round about, down to his homeland. He's burning cities to try to get to us, killing priests to try to get to us. I'll leave. David leaves. He goes northwest to the Philistines, to the king of Gath. 
And for a while, he's able to be there. He has to leave again. He comes back. Long story. But the point is, in order to avoid being crowned king by being forced to kill Saul too soon, in order to avoid taking the crown himself, he leaves. Jesus also, in order to avoid being crowned king too soon, leaves. And he goes the same direction, northwest. Only at this time, he's got to go a little further to get away from where the Hebrews have spread. And he got Samaria in there and all this stuff too. But he goes to Tyre and Sidon. It's northwest of Jerusalem, quite a ways out of Jewish territory entirely. And, oh, what a setup. This is the most ancient, wicked grouping of cities on the planet. Do you know the name Jezebel? Don't name your daughter this. Whatever you do. I've seen people name this. It's like you just don't know. This is the most wicked woman the Bible records. She is the daughter of a witch king. A witch king. Okay, Think that through. Ancient world, I'm the ruler of your city. Okay, And I have a wall. So you're glad I'm here. But I also say I'm God. And I speak to the gods and for the gods. And I do blood magic and stuff. So you should do what I want because I'm better than you, right? That's the ancient world. She's the daughter of one of these guys who's really good at this. In fact, probably is working with real demons. She gets herself married to a king of the northern kingdom after Israel is split. And he likes this. This is what he wants. He wants more demons. He wants a real religion to fight back against the real religion down in Judea where there's an actual god. Anyway, she gets in the bloodline there. Things do not end well for her or her house or the house that marries her as a result. Israel is led into all sorts of apostasy. Many people die. You might remember the 400 prophets who get their throats slit in that thing with Elijah. Like all that's Jezebel, which means all that is Tyre and Sidon. Think of it this way too. Remember who the Israelites are. They're slaves from Egypt who came over the mountains and killed everybody and took our stuff, and made us live on the coastlands. Yeah, you can marry my daughter. Sure. And then she gets her daughter married to the king of the southern kingdom. You've heard this in this last year. And by the time she's done, all her grandsons, who are sons of David, the guy who killed Goliath, remember that, so they could conquer? All the sons of David are murdered in their beds, except one who a priest escapes with. Great story. But that's Jezebel. That's Tyre and Sidon. It's a horrible place, even in Jesus' day. But in Jesus' day, things have modernized a little. The Roman Empire has come. It's, the witch king isn't probably still quite there. But then, well, what happens? Verse 22, a Canaanite woman. This is worse than Tyre and Sidon. Who are the Canaanites? They're the ones at the center of where Israel is that they were supposed to kill right away. Like Joshua, before he died. This should have been done. This is where Joshua... Like, fails, right? This woman should have been dead and never existed. Or to use American parlance, uh, they should have made a choice to have her quality of living be ended before it got too bad. Uh, so that didn't happen. And there's all these things in the Old Testament that show how bad it goes when people don't listen to God. But there's also all these things that show how God uses it for good anyway, every time. So here is this actual bona fide Canaanite woman and one better. She's pleading for mercy because her daughter has a demon. Well, when you worship witch kings, you know what happens, right? Right? 
Now, that's the context into which Jesus' conversation with her now needs to be understood. He's in a public conversation with his disciples about her and that entire place while he tries to avoid getting killed too soon because he knows he has to die at Passover. He knows where. No one else understands. So he's like, okay, I got to move around a little bit. Must have been a great time, honestly. I'm sure he really lived. Really. But, so, the text comes down, and they're up in this place, and this Canaanite, she's crying out, not only, oh, Lord, like calling him God, you are the God king, but she calls him son of David. What a name to put on her lips. Now, that means what you know is that she really knows who this guy is, but is telling us as Christians today, why is he in Tyre and Sidon? What does David have to do with Tyre and Sidon and the Philistines, right? Everything I just told you. But she knew that too. She knew that. That's why she's saying this. And then a the bit about the demon, but notice 23, he did not answer her a word. Now, Why? I said a moment ago, he's trying to keep a low profile. So that, that makes sense. David has some trouble up in Gath. You remember that? Uh, they don't like that he's around. And they start to say, he's the guy who killed all the people. Are you sure you want him here? No. So they're trying to keep a low profile. But I think it's more than that. As with everything that goes on in the New Testament, when there's an event and conversation with Jesus' disciples, the conversation is for Jesus' disciples. And then we now, being Jesus' disciples, want to be like them, right? We want to not be the woman just yet. Let's be the disciples. And we're with Jesus, and this happens, right? And we're supposed to learn from what he says. So here we are moving around this place, trying to keep a low profile, and there's some crazy woman screaming at us. And Jesus says, whatever. Just uh, let it go. But his disciples came to him. They don't like it. And they begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, you kind of have a choice here. In the context, I believe they're hungry. And so it may be that they're just wanting food. Uh, it could also be they don't want to make a big ruckus. Huh? But what's clear is this. They don't come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, this poor woman has a demon-possessed daughter. Will you please help her? Now, they say, Jesus, we need her to shut up. So Jesus says to them, right, not to her, to them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, there's been plenty of debate about this, but I'll cut through it like a knife for you if you want me to. He is not saying, I wasn't sent to save everybody. He is saying, I was sent to do miracles to the Jews so they would kill me. I didn't come here to do miracles. Never did, even among the Jews. I'm mainly doing it so they kill me. You know why he gets killed is Lazarus, finally. It's Lazarus that gets him killed. Yeah. So he's just telling them, I'm not up here to do miracles. And by the way, we're trying not to get killed right now. So I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now he hasn't talked to her. She came and knelt before him. She bursts in. This is very inappropriate, by the way. Just culturally, very inappropriate unclean on all sorts of levels and just rude and risky. She's a woman. I mean, he could practically kill her in the street depending on where he is in the world. I mean, she's going to just annoy him like this and not leave him alone. 
She throws herself before him. Lord, help me. And it says, he answered, but you have another decision to make. Because he's going to answer twice, and I want you to look at it together here. Verse 26 and 28. Notice how verse 28, it says he answered her. So I would contest that verse 26, he's not talking to her yet. She's on the ground groveling. And he's still talking to the apostles. And he says, answering her question to the apostles, it is, or continuing, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Which, there's so much in this. First, I said a moment ago, he was sent to do miracles among the Jews so they would kill him. But remember, many people believed because of these miracles too. And so that's the bread coming down from heaven, born even at Bethlehem, yeah, the house of bread. And Jesus, who speaks of himself as the bread from heaven. And so he's saying that these miracles in my existence right now are for the cross and for the life of the world, not for whatever happens to make one person's life better, give or take, in any given time. And if you have sin from generations past, from their rejection of the word of God upon you, and you don't know about it, that's a problem. I can't solve that other than to tell you about it and then repent. Believe. Don't blame God. But that's what she's doing as she hears him say this again. That Jesus says, I'm the bread from heaven and I didn't come here to do miracles. Yeah? And she says, yes, Lord. Now, it doesn't say yet. Uh, The commentary I read by Dr. Jeff Gibbs from uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis He says there's 28 times in the Bible where the two words that are translated as yet even here show up. 28 times. None of them are negative except this one. So what that means is she is not saying, yes, Lord, but even the dogs give me something. There's no but. It's an and. Yes, Lord, and even the dogs eat the crumbs. Okay. Now let me explain what that means. It gets even better. Remember, Jesus is just saying to his disciples, I'm the bread that came down from heaven for a certain purpose. And she's like, yeah, but they kicked you out of your land and you're standing right in front of me right now. Help me. Woman, great is your faith, he says. Because she listened better than his disciples. She knew who he was. She knew what he was doing. Go as your faith has asked for it, yeah? He gives it. Now, In our age where we are now, do not take Jesus answering this prayer for her to cast out that demon right there as some sort of like supermarket in the sky for prayer for us today. Just get that out of your head right away, right? But do know also that when you pray according to the Holy Spirit's will, start with the Lord's prayer. It's a good place. The Psalms, they help a lot. When you pray those prayers, God never says no. He might teach you that you misunderstood the prayer when you prayed it. So you pray for the right thing next. But he's going to keep doing that. That's who he is. And that's what this story teaches. It's not about her daughter being free, although you see there too that the gospel's for everybody, even a great, 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 great granddaughter of Jezebel, right? Gospel's for everybody. Christ is for everybody. Uh, But because, again, of him being that bread from heaven around this whole story, it all revolves around him. And again, what is Lent? We're walking with him in this time of travail. He's in hiding like David. People hate him. They are confused by him. Everywhere he goes, there's a stir and a ruckus in the crowd, and they're ready to throw stones at him. And he knows within a month they're going to put nails through his body till he bleeds out. 
But he's doing this on purpose because he knows, again, that the hope of glory is his resurrection. That actively, obediently doing this for the Father, all the world is purchased and walking out. He can do with it as he will. And the only thing he's promised not to take with him is the demons and the devil. They're the only things guaranteed to be destroyed, demons and devils. Now, there's going to be people who don't come with us. That's their choice. But remember, the hope of glory. You're walking one day. I don't know. I got a, I got a bad hip right now. So I'm, I'm walking. One moment, one day, snap. Oh, body just got good. There's light everywhere. There's Jesus. Whoa, we're flying. Like, that's what the Bible says. The hope of glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen.